0: And uh, if Soul Pink asks us, maybe we'll let them use it. We'll see. Uh, interesting to watch that uh, video and see what the answers are to the question, what, if you lost it, would make you sick to your stomach? And it's a uh, relatively predictable, I think. It's sort of all over the map of um, serious and sort of insignificant stuff. The one one line that struck me out of that was when the the guy first says, you know, the ability to drink, and then moves on to, and he's sort of hem and hawing about trying to be funny. It was my girlfriend. Did you catch his girlfriend's response? Shut up, do something real. To which he's surprised response, no. And it, it was sort of interesting that uh, it, it struck me there's a, perhaps a reticence to actually touch the thing that actually would make you sick to your stomach to lose, that we'd rather skitter along the edges. And as I went through the the soul pancake website last week and i look, i don't know i looked through probably 50 60 70 different answers on there and they they ranged and i thought i categorized them in three categories there was the uh, family friends something like that there was insignificant stuff which was a fair bit of that and uh, there was um, surprisingly one of the dumb ones was my mind not not my mind they were saying about themselves their mind Many people, it does make them the sick of the summer to think about me losing my mind, but nonetheless, not many said it on theirs. Some people did a combination, and again, it's that reticence, I think, to touch the real. Or, you know, there was one that she said, it was very tough, my boyfriend and the support of his family. Oh, oh, and my pajama pants. Was like, <laughs> it was like, there's a little bit of whiplash. It's almost as if we, we, we want to get off the real question as fast as we can. And as I was exploring this question myself, what, what, what hit me is that not only do I think about what makes me sick to my stomach to lose, but there are certain things, not losing them, thinking about losing them, makes me sick to my stomach. If I lost my keys, that would make me slightly queasy, and it's why I'm queasy a lot, because I lose things like that a lot. But there are other things, just the contemplation of it. That puts a pit in my stomach. Honestly, there are some things to contemplate that I understand why people don't quite want to touch them. There are some losses that if we even think about them, they seem too much. There's a line which I'll loosely quote, quote from Into the Wild, the movie Into the Wild, where the voiceover of the the boy who was out in the woods, his, his sister, is, a loss so catastrophic that the mind cannot calculate its measure. There are things that we would lose that even to think about them, the mind cannot calculate its measure. It feels too weighty, and I will not lead into those this morning. You all can put whatever you want in that place, and there is something. There are some things that even to touch on makes us uneasy, and so we move away. The truth is, in this world that we live in, loss is inevitable. It's going to happen. We're going to deal with loss in one form or fashion. And honestly, in many fashions, we experience loss that's outside of our own responsibility. You know, some circumstance happens. You know, the last guy, who I think was an engineer, just the fact that he goes, let me put him in order. But anyway, he he talks about the business. And he, he says, if the business goes poorly, it'll affect all these other people. Well, there are some things, some of you have been affected by the fact that our economy has faltered. It was no fault of your own, and yet you experienced loss, and the loss multiplied in your life from something else, from a circumstance that you, you couldn't avoid. Sometimes we experience loss through the ill will of others. We, we, it's simply not a random circumstance. Somebody actually does something that causes us loss, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual or, or financial. And sometimes the losses of our own making. It seems to me that in humanity, and I'll, a lot of times today, I'm just going to say I'll put it on me. You can put it on you if you want. But I, I, it seems to me that I have a unique, and my sense is that most people have a unique capacity for self-destruction, for doing that thing that actually causes us loss, and looking back on it and going, "Why again did I, did I do that, which caused significant loss in my life?" So loss is inevitable. It's going to happen. The bigger question is this. If in the world we live in, loss is going to happen, even in the best things in our life, how do we keep it from being catastrophic? Because loss is inevitable. Catastrophe is not. You know, and as I was sort of toying with the idea of the relationships and where we experience loss and you know, a lot of people say, I fear the loss of my family if they were to lose that. But the truth is, even in the midst of our relationships now, whether it's marriage or, or parenting or our, our parents or friends, even in the relationship may not end, we experience loss in the moments which can be exceedingly difficult that we have to navigate through. There's a, a counselor named Larry Crabb who, who said this. He said, there is perhaps no marriage of any depth that hasn't at some point reached a seemingly irredeemable low. And I think that's absolutely true. That's my experience and the experience of everybody I know in a a marriage is that at some point, you, you almost want to throw up your hands. At some point, it feels like there's no hope. It can't go any farther. It's seemingly irredeemable. And in those moments, that sick to your stomach is pretty strong. The truth is, sick to our stomach is not foreign to any of us. All of us are all too familiar with that pit in our stomach, either from the thing that has happened or the thing that we fear has happened, will happen. And many in the room right now, you walk in, you're nauseous as you start because you've already lost something that you didn't think you could lose or certainly did not want to lose. And it was more significant than your pajama pants, although losing them, I would guess in certain situations could be very bad. (laughs) Nonetheless, loss is inevitable. Catastrophe is not because of one reason, one word, and that word is hope. And I need to talk about hope for a few moments because often we throw hope out there in a very wishy-washy way. When I say hope, I don't mean wishy-washy, wishful thinking. As in, I hope things will go okay. There is absolutely no reason to believe there is. But I hope they'll go okay. There is a concept in the Bible of hope, which is I can have a reasonable expectation that my future will be good, that my story's not yet fully written. You see, the reality is when hope is lost, all is lost. And then catastrophe seems inevitable. At the moments of our life when we think, I don't see any way out of this, then we are hopeless and without equipment for living that allows us to navigate loss. If loss is inevitable, the question that struck me this week, and really, I really wrestled with this. You know, when we first got onto this topic, I thought, oh, this will be fun, which may tell you something about the way my brain works. But I thought, oh, this will be fun. We'll explore. This will be interesting. But as I wrestled with it, it became more and more troubling to me because I could not escape that thought that loss is inevitable. And so I could not offer to anybody today You will never experience that sick to your stomach feeling. What I had to reckon with is that I and every one of you experiences that far more than we like to. It is inevitable. So, how do I live in this world that I must navigate in a way that hope survives? How do I make hope live in the midst of a world where loss is inevitable? And I'm going to read a passage to you today and then I'm going to tell you how we're going to explore that for the rest of the time. But There's a, this passage in the book of Romans which is a, a book that was written to the church at Rome by a man named Paul. And in the right in the center of the book there is this striking little section that starts like this. For the creation was subjected to, subjected to frustration not by its own cho- choice but by the will of one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And, and you just stop there and it says oh, the whole world feels this sense of loss and groaning. It's inevitable. That's the, the space in which we live. We'll be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. See, there's something there. There's something there that we have to discover. Paul says it's inevitable. We all feel a groaning within. We see it around us. We see that birth pains, as, as, it, as it were. We see struggle. We see grief. And yet he said, but there's something... There's something, there's a hope which will save us in the midst of that. And so, again, it begs the question, how do I live in such a way that hope survives? Because I'm absolutely going to need it. It is essential equipment for living in the world that I'm in right now. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what he already has? And it's sort of given that quizzical thing. The thing you need, the thing you need in the midst of today When the story appears to have hit its dark moment, the thing you need in the midst of today is hope that the story's not yet written and there's something on the other side. And obviously you can't see that because that's in the future. That's what you're wanting to have happen. It's what we're hoping to have happen. The dream appears to be dead. Can it be raised again? The relationship appears to hit a brick wall. Can the brick wall be knocked down? And hope is not an insubstantial, I wish, but it's saying, I can't see it because it's farther ahead. For what what can I have in my life that allows hope to survive those moments? The moments of grief and the moments of loss. Because in that hope, we're saved. And then in this last verse, which I'm going to get to more at the end, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans that words cannot express. Sometimes sometimes when I speak to you all, or really to, to anyone, I, I, what hits my head is I want to be really, really careful on certain topics, and I guess I ought to be on every topic, but I want to be really, really careful on certain topics, not to be trite, because the issue is so poignant and so visceral to all of us that I want to think through carefully what I, what I say and not simply toss some stuff out that seems good. And so as I really wrestled with this, and again, I I went through this process as I was thinking, loss is inevitable. There you go. This is the world we navigate where loss is inevitable. Sometimes loss that seems crushing. But I think catastrophe is not if there is hope, if there is the belief that the story is not yet complete, that there is good on the other side. And so I asked myself the question, really, how can I live so that hope survives? And as I did so, I thought, relatively different from what we normally do on Sunday, I want to tell you three things, really three pieces, in my opinion, of equipment for living. And I, I, I asked myself the question, how am I going to live so that hope survives? Because I'm going to need it. I'm going to need hope in the midst of my days to live well and to live free. And so I'm going to tell you three things. And there's not simply three things that allow hope to survive, you know, but here are three that really struck me that I want to talk to you about today. The first of those is this. I'm going to to treasure the relationships that can either make or unmake my life. In other words, I think there are certain relationships in every one of our life that have far more traction on our heart and soul, and the loss of which or the unraveling of which can do far more damage to our sense of hope. There are certain relationships that if those go south, it will be extremely difficult on our heart. And so it made me think, you know what I want to do? If I want to have hope survive, then I'm going to treasure the relationships that have the potential of unmaking my life and bringing serious discouragement, even despair if I'm not careful. I want to live in such a way that I treasure them. And then I thought to myself, how often do I not live as if I'm treasuring that relationship because the loss of it could unmake me? And, you know, for example, my wife and I, we've argued, I I think, two or three times in our marriage. (laughs) The last time there was—I waited this time because the last time there was no response. I thought, really? Do you really think we've argued two or three times in our marriage? Because we've argued four or five, you know? And you know how it is. You're in the argument with a spouse or a friend or a, a, a parent. We've all experienced those arguments. And, you know, you've had this sort of the butting of heads and it's, it's gotten unhappy. And then there's the almost, you know, the going to the neutral corner. And I, I see myself, like I have to picture myself in the neutral corner, you know, and, and when this has happened. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm having an argument. Nobody else is in the room, you understand. And I'm having an argument, you know and i'm winning you know why i'm winning because i'm right and because she's wrong and i am i am blistering i mean the logic is just so incredible as i walk through everything that she has done wrong and every way that i have been defrauded and i've spent time and i've i've got this beautiful argument and then I see, I'm, I'm standing looking at myself now, and so I'm going, oh my, what is wrong with you? Because at the moment, I'm not. In the moment, all I'm thinking is, how do I prove I'm right? And you want to say, what in the world is wrong with you? That's a great idea. Win the argument, trash the relationship. In those moments, and it's where the push comes to shove, in those moments, I am taking full-on shots at hope. Because I'm not treasuring the relationships that have the possibility of unmaking me, of causing me to unravel. And then I ask myself, how can I live with better questions than winning that argument? What can I do so that this relationship is treasured with truth and with honesty and with beauty and with courage? and with selflessness, and it doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to friendship, and it applies applies to your kids, and it applies to your parents. Some, room this size with this many people, some of you right now are looking at a relationship that matters a great deal to you, and it's unraveling, and it's unraveling badly. And you are teetering on the brink of giving up. You're right on the edge. You're thinking, Oh, come on. I've tried. I've done my best. I just, I can't do it anymore. You've just about resigned yourself to letting hope die in that relationship. Because everything I need to know about how to live well, I can learn from soccer. I will tell you this story about Liverpool. Liverpool. And then at the end of it, you will go, oh, he's right. You can learn everything you know about soccer. I root for Liverpool. Liverpool is a soccer club slash football club if you're in England. Liverpool, England. I became a fan of Liverpool in the 2005 FA Cup final when I was watching it with my son, and we were having an English bre- breakfast at Big Ben's, and they were losing 3-1. to It's over, people. It's 3-1. to It's midway through the second half. They got no shot. This is high-level soccer. You don't give up two goals. You throw everybody back because all we want to do is win now. There's no shot. Liverpool didn't seem to know they had no shot. They played like their hair was on fire. They just kept tacking and tacking, and then they get a goal. It's 3-2, to two, but still it's 3-2. to two. You don't walk out. like, hey, got closer. It's 3-2. to two. They're still going to lose. And then in the 90th minute, which is the last minute, by the way, Steven Gerrard comes forward, and there's a ball. It's 35 yards out. I mean, so what? He comes running through, and he smashes this shot from 35 yards into the corner. Crowd goes wild. Ah. In the moment, I became a Liverpool fan. (laughs) Seriously. Because they didn't give in to resignation. It was like, I knew. I knew when I watched Liverpool, there'd never be a moment where they'd say, oh, we're giving up. They were going to, in the tiredest cliche in all of sports, leave it all out in the field. Here's the question. Some of you will leave it all out in the field playing Scrabble. You will throw everything, heart and soul, into winning that game. And yet, in the relationships that have the possibility of unmaking your life, I give up. Our ego... Our desire for convenience and comfort rises, hope dies. I said to myself, How do I live in such a way that hope survives? I treasure relationships that have the possibility of making my world. Secondly, how do I live in such a way that hope survives? <clears throat> is I determine very carefully those things that I'm going to cling tightly to and those things which I'm going to let loose of. I'm not really going to talk about pajama pants because I think we all know we ought to let loose of those. However, what I decided is, okay, this is just pragmatics, by the way. If loss is inevitable in the world in which we live, if I'm going to experience loss, then this is wise. This is just wisdom. I'm going to hold less things tightly because if I hold many things tightly, I will experience far more loss if things matter too much to me, then loss happens over and over again. And so just out of pragmatics, forget about idolatry, forget about which misuses your soul, just out of pragmatics, let me determine those things I'm willing to let my world get rocked over. And let me make sure they're worthy of that. Because my world's going to get rocked. There are places where I'm going to hit hard. And so if I want to live in such a way that hope survives. I'm going to limit those things to as few as possible, the few things that really matter. And everything else, I'm going to attempt to hold loosely. Now, I'll be honest with you, I think this is hard work. It's far far easier not to consider what we're holding tightly. But it's better for our souls to do the hard work of saying, you know what, I'm going to hold these things tightly. If I get rocked, I'm going to get rocked here. Not over that. It's not worth my heart. Final piece. How can I live in such a way that hope survives is, is honestly really the big one. It's, not, it's far more than pragmatics. And it comes for from at the end of this passage that I read, where it says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with groans that words cannot express. It's almost as if this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, you're going to experience loss. There's groaning in your life. And he's giving us a picture. But there is a glorious freedom. There is something more ahead for you. But he seems to acknowledge the fact that there's going to be points in our lives where we go, I don't have the resources for this. I'm rocked in such a way that it's beyond my capacity for hope. And he says, it's okay. I know you're going to come there. I know you're going to come to places. You don't even know the words to pray. If you were praying, you wouldn't even know what to say. You got nothing. You come to the table and you bring nothing. And he says, it's okay. In those moments, there is a resource beyond you. Wording, I think, is used very carefully. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, will intercede for you. When something intercedes, it stands between. And I see this passage, to me, I see it visually. I see it on that side is hopelessness, is darkness, is grief, is sorrow, is loss is the end of things I treasure dearly, and in the midst of that, as I face that, and I can't, I can't, I get to the moment, I can't face that. The spirit stands in the gap between me and despair and looks at me and reminds me there is a hope beyond my own resources. And that is the equipment for living I must have to survive a world where loss is inevitable. Last Sunday, Sundays make me tired because I'm an introvert. And so when I speak, it takes a lot of energy out of me, interpersonally. And so by Sunday afternoon, it's like the only time in, in my life where I'm emotional. Because on Sunday afternoon, I'm, I'm sort of drained. And so last Sunday, you know, I said, why don't we go to a movie with the family? That's a lovely idea. I could sit there. I might even fall asleep, you know, and have some popcorn. So let's see where the wild things are. That's a great idea. Let's see where the wild things are. It's a kid's movie. Good animation. Oh, my. (laughs) I may never have been as sad in my life. Have you seen this? It's like, okay, somebody put the razor blades away because this is really bad. It is tragically sad. I mean, if you're a child, you're probably going, what in the world is going on? But I'm looking at this guy. It's just loneliness. I mean, the the overarching question that the, the wild things keep asking is, will our life ever be any different other than the specter of loneliness and conflict? And the answer to that question is, nope. <laughs> Don't see the movie. No. <laughs> it's an excellent movie, truly. It is. And perhaps if I hadn't watched it on a Sunday afternoon, I would have been happier. But what it struck me is, this is those creatures. They thought, they thought the little boy Max. He was the one who was standing between them and despair. And he couldn't. He's a little boy. And then when the pretense of that was taken away, they realized there is no king for us. There's nobody who's a solid anchor for hope. I I'm, seriously, without the presence, the reality of a God, not a not a you know, ethereal God off there, a God who intercedes, then you and I stare at loss with no filter and no one to stand in the gap. But the reality is that there is a God who is not distant, who sees our plight and who always intercedes such that we can know with certainty the story is not yet written. Hope does not die because He keeps it alive. This passage says we wait, we eagerly wait the glorious freedom. When God makes our hearts and souls fully free from fear, from isolation, from insecurity, from alienation, from ego. We wait for that glorious freedom which He promises to produce. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ interceded. He stood in the gap between you and I in death. And he didn't do it by going, you know, here's a pamphlet. Go read this. I think things will be fine. He stood in the gap. He died from the cross. I mean, seriously, how much more can you stand in the gap? He said, you're going to die. You're going to be separated from God by your own sin. I'll stand in the gap. I'll pay it instead. And then there's this passage where it says in the book of Hebrews, and he lives to intercede. That Jesus stands guard every day to intercede for you when your resources are empty. When you have tried to live in such a way that hope survives. And then you're a hit. At that moment, he stands between you in despair. Because he promises that he's the one you can rely on. That that's the solid anchor for your life. That he knows the end of the story and it's not yet finished for you. Today if you're looking at your life and you're thinking I am not sure this story is going to a good place. It's not yet written. It's midway through. God promises the confident expectation of future good for you. He says that which I've begun in you I'll complete. I'll complete you to glorious freedom. And I would say quite honestly, I I know that every Sunday at Warehouse there are people who walk in the room who I'm thrilled you are here, but you came in thinking that you need a little shot of spirituality just sort of add to the package of the rest of your life. Throw in a little bit of spirituality. You need some religion. You're wondering, maybe I get a little bit of religion. I don't have a little bit of religion for you, really. And it won't help you. I mean, it's, it's just a little packet of stuff, what God offers you is hope. To Him actually to be in the center of your life. To Him actually to be watching over the path that you will take. For Him to be holding on to your dreams and either directing them or raising them. For Him to be giving you actual hope for every moment of your day. And so I would say to you, not because more people will come to Warehouse if I say this, but for your own sake, turn Your life to Jesus Christ. Because there is a hope that will allow you to have the equipment for living that you absolutely need. We sometimes content ourselves with the thought that loss is not inevitable. But it is. And you know that. You got the pit of your stomach all too often. A relationship with Jesus Christ, a connection with God, does not promise you you won't experience loss. It promises that hope will survive in the midst of it because he is taking you to a place of relevance, significance, and freedom. And I invite you into that. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for the fact that you're not an ethereal God who's somewhere off in the clouds and ivory tower deity, but you are a God who intercedes for us. I'm even grateful that that word is there to remind us that you stand between us and that which we on our own cannot face. We cannot face death on our own. We have not the resources to overcome that, but you do and you give them to us. We cannot face grievous loss on our own, and yet you can because you write more of our story beyond that loss. You even use that loss in such a way that you bring us to a place of freedom and wholeness. And so, would you teach us today how to live in such a way that hope survives, trusting you, anchoring our life to you? We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. As we come to communion this morning, to, to Lord's Supper, it's, it's you know, it's one of these things. That I, I know I've told you before, but one of the reasons why I love. What we do with this is because it takes abstract concepts and makes it concrete. I mean, that's what Jesus liked to do. When he was about to die, he said, look, guess what? I, want to, I want you to remember what's going on here. I want you to remember what I'm doing. And so he took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he tells them to take it and eat it. And then he gets a cup of wine at the end of the meal and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for their missions of sin. He says, he says, drink it. Okay, what's the... Your overarching message is, is what? Jesus is saying, I'm not just dying. It's not a tragic death. I'm dying so that you can receive something. I die, you receive life. I'm broken, you become whole. Take it. And then he says, it's 2,000 years later. I want you to remember. I want you to remember the tangibility of what I'm doing, that it was an actual death and an actual resurrection, and it was for you. And so then he bids us to come forward and let hope be birthed again.